Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 79 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Dr. Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, we come to you with some of the discussions about the latest research in clinical dermatology, and we have a special guest with us today. You might recall from some episodes ago that we are friends with a group called Level X, which is a company that makes video games to help train doctors, and they have one for dermatologists and dermatologic clinicians called Top Derm, and they very kindly invited Michelle and I to create some content. And they even drew us as cool-looking superheroes, and they called us Derm Heroes, which, again, is not an honor I deserve, but I think that Michelle does. And at the AAD this year, they had a contest, and whoever won the contest was a bona fide Derm Hero as well, and gets to appear on our show, which is this show. So I am pleased to introduce Dr. Rena Alau. Dr. Alau, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for uh, Level X for um, nominating me to be on this show, and thank you both. Um, I'm a board-certified dermatologist right outside of Philadelphia um, in King of Prussia. You might know it for the huge mall, um, and I see uh, both adults and children, um, and I'm excited to be on to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is skin of color. Awesome. I would love to talk to you about skin of color. Let's do it. What should <laughs> all dermatologists know about patients with skin of color? Yeah, so one of the most tricky things about dermatology is that all skin conditions can appear in different in different ways um, based on your skin type. And so one of the things, one of the biggest things that I always recommend for dermatologists, and residents who are training and medical students is to really look at different skin conditions and different skin types. So really look at pictures online or in your patients itself. Um, and for example, psoriasis, make kind of be comfortable with what psoriasis may look like in a Caucasian individual versus someone who has a little bit of a darker Fitzpatrick skin type, such as someone who's Hispanic or um, Middle Eastern like myself or African American. So having that background is going to really make you um, better able to diagnose skin conditions and even counsel patients on their skin condition. And then one of the other, you know, big advice that I have when it comes to skin of color is everyone has different treatment goals and individuals of skin of color may have some a, a little bit of a different treatment goal. Um, specifically, and I, I think you guys may be able to comment as well with hyperpigmentation, tends to be a, a huge concern um, for individuals of skin of color, just because, um, you know, not only the cosmetic appearance, but maybe a cultural um, concern as well. And so um, addressing that and just not only addressing the skin condition, but also mentioning that they may have hyperpigmentation because of the skin condition, I think makes your interaction with the patient a lot more, um, more strong. Absolutely. I am so grateful that you're on the podcast talking with us about this today, because I think it's such an important issue. 
And it's one we're starting to recognize we are undereducating our residents in and are starting to make efforts towards closing that knowledge gap. But I think having people who have authentic like passion for improving the state of care for patients with skin of color at the forefront of that discussion is so important. So we're super happy to have you here. Um, I think also patients who um, have part of their life experience in countries where certain conditions are more prevalent, dispigmentation can even be more distressing. Um, I have some patients that originate from Southeast Asia or from India who, when they have pigmentary disorders, it's a lot more distressing because in the environments where they, they've spent part of their life, there can be an association with leprosy um, mm -hmm. or other transmissible disease with dispigmentation. Have you run into that or have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see that with a lot of my Middle Eastern, Southeast Asian patients as well, um, where they're concerned that it may also, um, especially with hyperpigmentation specifically, or even vitiligo, they almost feel like it's going to make them less of a, less of an individual or may make them even when they're, um, for example, I actually had a patient the other day and her daughter was going through a, a common Indian ceremony during around puberty. And she was really concerned um, about her, not necessarily the eczema, but the hyperpigmentation. And she said, well, people are going to think she's dirty because she's got these dark marks. And so it's more of a culture. I agree with you, Michelle. I think, you know, there's definitely a stigma against hyperpigmentation and, and even in vitiligo too, you know, because it's a little bit more highlighted when you have a darker background of skin, it almost, they may think of it as just not only a skin disease, but is this contagious? Is this you know, associated with leprosy or um, with an infectious disease. So um, there's a lot of concern with that as well. So speaking of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, it sucks and it's hard to treat. So what I tell patients is obviously sun protection is really, really important. I can use topical retinoids. Sometimes I use hydroquinone. And then I tell them again that sun protection is super, super important. And I can tell them it can take like a long time, like a year, maybe even a couple of years for it to get better but it will get better generally. Is there anything else I should be doing or am I doing it wrong? No, I think you have a great approach with when it, it when sun protection is the, the main stay for um, preventing worsening of the hyperpigmentation. A lot of patients will come in, especially skin of color, and they may not necessarily wear sunscreen at all. Or if they wear it, they're only wearing it when they have increased or prolonged sun exposure. And so especially for melasma, for example, I usually, you know, will kind of counsel them on sunscreen and then focusing on sunscreen that has broad coverage. So UVA and UVB. So making sure that their sunscreen has zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. Um, and a lot of times in, in patients with skin color, they don't like the appearance of sunscreen. Um, it's white and pasty. So really finding a sunscreen that works for them and kind of um, counseling them on all these different you know, sunscreens, and there's some now that have, that are tinted, which are um, a little bit, you know, more cosmetically appeasing, you know, for these patients. Um, so, but hydroquinone is great. You know, there are, you know, certain, um, I'm not a cosmetic dermatologist by any means, but I do refer a lot of my patients to cosmetic dermatologists in the area um, and, and do some, a little bit of laser myself, but refer a lot of the patients who have hyperpigmentation to talk about certain lasers, 
Um, interestingly, at the American Academy of Dermatology, I went to a lecture about hyperpigmentation, and one of the lecturers had mentioned topical licorice extract for hyperpigmentation. I don't know, have you guys, either of you, used this before? So that's an interesting question. There's There was an Aveeno skincare line that had a licorice extract in it. Um, I think lycocaline was the name, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, the attempts to sort of inhibit some of the pigmentation that can happen post-inflammatory states. And I do think that there is some um, option for efficacy. You have to be a little bit careful because it can be um, photosensitizing, if mm -hmm. my understanding is correct. So the use has to be tailored towards avoiding that exposure. But I think it is a nice potential alternative for people who are um, my, crunchy, my crunchy granola patients, like I like to say, the patients mm -hmm. that really want everything natural. Mm -hmm. um, I think you just have to be careful about sourcing it and counseling the patient about sun exposure while they're using it. But I do think that that's a, a potentially useful treatment as well. And then one other thing we've got interest with in, derm in Dermosphere is talking about um, under-recognition of skin cancer in patients with skin of color. And in fact, the, the unfortunate prevailing thought, even sometimes amongst some medical practitioners, that patients with skin of color can't have skin cancer. Mm -hmm. um, back in episode seven, we talked about Diana Torres, who is a former Miss Universe who came forward with her own personal story about melanoma and how that actually improved um, visit rates for patients who have a similar skin type and, and ethnic background to her. And so I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about skin, skin cancer in patients with skin of color. Yeah, certainly. Um, a lot of, that's a great point because a lot of patients come in and um, of darker skin types, and they don't necessarily think they need an annual skin exam or screening. And so I have seen um, quite a few of skin cancers and skin of color. Um, a lot of patients who um, grew up in um, the Middle East or um, in, in um, Southeast Asia, I have patients who uh, grew up in the Caribbean um, who have had extensive sun exposure with a little bit little um, sun sunscreen use, and I have um, identified some skin cancers. We don't just see melanomas in these patients. We can also see, you know, basal cells and squamous cells. And I think a, a, a commonly we think of these skin non-melanoma skin cancers in Caucasians or more fair skin types. And yes, these individuals are at a more increased risk, but certainly um, I have seen basal cells in um, darker skin types. And one of the things actually um, that is most concerning is that these patients may not necessarily um, have these skin cancers identified earlier on, and they actually may become a little bit more aggressive because they're um, less likely to be diagnosed in the earlier stages. Um, and so that's the main concern. And um, I believe that the American Academy of Dermatology on their website, they actually have, a con they comment on skin cancer and skin of color, um, and specifically how they tend, they have noted um, that these skin cancers tend to be um, more in, in the more advanced stages because they're less likely to be diagnosed in the earlier stages, which is concerning. Um, and so getting, you know, it really starts with um, if a patient of skin of color is coming in for hyperpigmentation, having that, you know, that opportunity to counsel them on, okay, well, we're going to give you sunscreen for, you know, or recommend sunscreen for your hyperpigmentation or your melasma. But how, when was the last time you had a skin exam? And and seeing their primary care doctor for skin exams is great, but really seeing a, a, a board-certified dermatologist is even more important. I think that's awesome. I think one thing people really love um, when they listen to the podcast is pearls, like mm -hmm. things that you can use in your clinical practice that are actionable. Do you have any pearls for treating patients with skin of color? That's a great question. I think one of the 
the things that I would recommend um, or a pearl when it comes to skin of color is um, really um, trying to address um, not only the skin condition, but also kind of focus on, you know, um, how it's impacting them. And I think that really ties into what we talked about before with the cultural issues. So I think when what happens is when I, for example, I had a patient the other day who um, she was also um, from India and she had um, lichen planus and she was just overdoing it with the, the topical steroids. She started getting hypopigmentation. She was not, you know, really, um, you know, she, she didn't, um, you know, even though we talked about the topical surgery, she was just going after the lichen planus on her arms. And so really, you know, I kind of try to understand why she was doing it. And she was so focused on the hyperpigmentation. She just, she didn't care if she bleached her skin. So really kind of counseling these patients, um, discussing the hyperpigmentation, that's the, the um, most important thing. The other thing that um, with skin of color that I've just been learning and I continue to learn and, and, and sometimes struggle with, I don't know about you guys, is his hair loss mm-hmm. um, with skin of color. Yeah. And, and it's really hair care practices. And it, one, you know, big pearl that I have is, is talking to the um, patient's hairdressers. I think that's mm-hmm. the most important thing, especially when it comes to traction alopecia um, and CCCA, um, central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia. <laughs> um, so I have a a few patients that I've reached out to the hairdressers because I've, I've been injecting. We talk about, you know, other treatment options and we just kind of hit a wall and it really comes down to their hair care practices and, and talking to their hairstylists um, about hair care practices and how to, you know, make sure that the, the braids are loose and, and to avoid any extra weight on the hair follicle. That's the biggest pearl. And I think we don't think about that sometimes. And I actually learned that from, um, a, a colleague of mine who had mentioned it to me. And so I, I just will never forget that. And I, I always get their hairdressers information. And so I think that's one of my other recommendations. That's awesome. I think that's a fantastic thing to do. One thing I do in my clinic is when I see a patient for other things who has skin of color, who has, um, a natural hairstyle or a braided hairstyle that is well done, that's Mm -hmm. not putting traction. I actually ask them, who does your hair oh, that's in our a good community? Idea. Yeah. And then I make a little list of people who I know know how to do um, textured hair in a way that's gentle to it. That's not going to promote um, traction alopecia. And then one other pearl that I learned when, um, I think I learned this from James Taylor, not the singer, but James Taylor, the contact <laughs> dermatitis specialist, um, is to use tangential lighting to perceive elevations of the skin because they're less yeah. noticeable in patients with skin of color um, because there's not this stark contrast between like red and, and light, like there can be in people who are more peach or beige or whatever. Um, right. but, um, uh, that si- that tangential lighting helps a lot to pick up. Like, is there a wheel? Is there a plaque? Is there papules that are harder to perceive, um, mm-hmm. in a darker background? And, and I found that to be very useful also. Luke, that's, a, have- that's a great idea. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Allow. We don't want to take up too much of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with while we've got you here on the mic? Just one last thing. One resource that I really love is actually Dr. Susan Taylor. Um, 
I, she practices um, in Philadelphia. She um, is an active member of the Skin of Color Society, and she has a great book. I think she wrote it with someone else. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but um, it's a great resource. I use it. I, I reference it a lot um, during my clinic. And so if you're ever interested in Skin of Color, they have a website. The Skin of Color Society has a great website that has resources, but also the textbook is amazing and has excellent pictures and just all these skin conditions and different skin types. So I love it and I just highly recommend it. And it looks like it might just be called Dermatology Skin of Color? Yes. Perfect. Yep. And if our listeners want to learn more about you and your stuff, do you have social media, websites, podcasts, anything like that you'd like to let us know about? Yeah. So um, I have a podcast myself called Skin of Color or Skin of Color. Skin of, so sorry, Skinning the Surface. Um, and um, so I... Um, interview some um, physicians, pharmacists, um, you know, um, individuals from the community, and then also abroad, um, just tailored to the average listener. Um, and then you can follow me at Dr. Rena Derm is my Instagram. And then our website is um, skinthesurfacepod.com. Thank you guys so much for having me. Excellent. Mm-hmm. We will put that information in the show notes and hopefully we'll see you again sometime in yeah. the Derm Hero Hall of Justice. <laughs> <laughs> see ya. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Derm Heroes Assemble. I know, I know. <laughs> All right, moving on. I want to talk about an article that we we've discussed about this article before, but we haven't yet actually discussed the article itself. And today, that will change. So I know we normally don't talk about oral care on this podcast because it's about dermatology. Well, I guess we do take care of the mucous membranes, but still. You want to be like, damn it, Jim. I'm a dermatologist, not a dentist. Do I have to bleep that out? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Anyway, I want to talk about the oral surveillance study. Again, we've talked about it before. This is the study that showed that there were risks associated with jack inhibitors and black box warnings and all that stuff. So the actual title of the article is Cardiovascular and Cancer Risk with Tofacitinib in Rheumatoid Arthritis. It was published in the New England Journal. And the authors include Stephen Itterberg and Carol Connell, as well as a bunch of other people. And this is the study why the FDA issued a warning about jack inhibitors in 2021. We discussed an editorial about this study that was published in the JAD back in episode 73. So the reason it's called the Oral Surveillance Study is O-R-A-L is an acronym for Oral Rheumatoid Arthritis Trial. And the FDA required Pfizer to perform this study, which was post-marketing study, after there were some events in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, with rheumatoid arthritis, who were on tofacitinib during the drug trials for that medication. And those events that they noticed were increased lipid levels and increased cancers. So those were people with rheumatoid arthritis who were taking tofacitinib in the trials. Some of them had increased lipids, some of them had increased cancers. And the FDA said, well, let's let's keep looking into that. And this is the outcome. So it's a multinational study of like 30 different countries. And they compared the risks in patients who are on tofacitinib versus patients who are on an alternative treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. We don't treat a lot of rheumatoid arthritis, so we might not know what the alternative treatments are, but they are, in fact, TNF inhibitors, among other things. So these patients were on a TNF inhibitor or they were on tofacitinib. The TNF inhibitors were adalimumab or etanercept, and then they followed these patients for about four years. There were about 4,400 patients 
basically evenly split among three groups, the TNF inhibitor group, and then tofacitinib 5 milligrams twice a day group, and then a tofacitinib 10 milligrams twice a day group. Okay. So the, this is important for dermatologists. The, the patient characteristics are really important, I think, for mm -hmm. us because one can argue whether or not they are generalizable to the sorts of patients that we would treat with JAK inhibitors. Tofacitinib is a JAK inhibitor, of course. So all of the patients in this study were age 50 or over. All of them had rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. All of them had at least one other cardiovascular risk factor. So rheumatoid arthritis already is a cardiovascular risk factor by itself. And all of these patients had rheumatoid arthritis, of course, and they also had something else that increased their cardiovascular risk, such as a history of smoking or coronary artery disease or diabetes or something. Okay. They all had at least one of those. And all of these patients were also on methotrexate. Okay. So once again, mm -hmm. everybody in the study, age 50 plus rheumatoid arthritis, at least one other cardiovascular risk factor and also on methotrexate. Okay. And they are being compared people on tofacitinib versus people on a TNF inhibitor. Nobody was compared to placebo. Probably would have been unethical to treat people with placebo, right? <laughs> yeah. So that also comes, comes into play here. So compared to patients with TNF inhibitors, patients on tofacitinib had an increased risk of major cardiovascular endpoints. And the abbreviation for major cardiovascular endpoints is MACE or MACE. Generally, those were myocardial infarctions and strokes. And also patients on tofacitinib compared to those on TNF inhibitors had an increased risk of malignancies, lymphoma and lung cancer specifically, and also thrombosis, and also death. Yeah. That's not good. Here are some more details. So the hazard ratio, we've discussed hazard ratios before and confidence intervals, so I'm not going to belabor it again here. But the hazard ratio for MACE, major cardiovascular endpoints, was 1.33 for tofacitinib in general. The confidence interval, though, was 0.9 to 2. So it included the number 1, which means it's possible that it's actually equivalent. So it's sort of frustrating that they say it was increased, despite the fact that the confidence interval captures 1. The risk for MACE was increased, especially in patients who are age 65 and over. A little bit more detail about this in particular. So they broke this up into the tofacitinib 5 milligrams BID versus 10 milligrams BID dose as well. And the risks are a bit different. So the hazard ratio for tofacitinib 5 milligrams BID was 1.2. And for 10 milligrams BID, it was 1.4. And both of them had confidence intervals that included 1. So it seems mm -hmm. like there wasn't actually an increased risk since the confidence interval included one, but the actual calculated hazard ratio was above one. So there you have it. They also calculated a number needed to harm, which is the number of additional patients needed to be treated to cause one extra major cardiovascular endpoint. So for example, over a five-year period, you would need to treat 113 patients with tofacitinib rather than a TNF inhibitor to cause one major cardiovascular endpoint. Okay, 113 patients over a five-year period, tofacitinib five milligrams twice daily versus TNF inhibitor to get one major cardiovascular endpoint. But I don't want people to have one major cardiovascular endpoint, but I like to think this kind of puts it in perspective. For 10 milligrams twice a day, that number needed to harm is 64 over a five-year period. So that's the story with MACE. For malignancy, the hazard ratio on tofacitinib was 1.5, and the confidence interval was 1.04, mm -hmm. 
to mm. 2.09. So it did not quite include one, though it got awfully close. Again, this was especially pronounced in patients age 65 and over. More details here. So again, they split out the hazard ratios by dosage. So the 5 milligrams BID dose, the hazard ratio was about 1.5, and the confidence interval was 1.0 to 2.2. So it did include one. And the 10 milligram twice a day was basically the same. So both of those, the confidence interval included one, but through statistical magic, when they combined the two tofacitinib doses, the confidence interval no longer included one. So whether or not that's actually relevant is tough to say. Again, the number needed to harm was 55 for both doses, which means you would have to treat 55 people with tofacitinib rather than a TNF inhibitor over a five-year period to cause one increased malignancy. And obviously, I don't want to have malignancies, but still. I mean, just looking at the numbers, it doesn't seem that bad. Is what I'm trying to get across here. <laughs> um, thrombosis. So there was definitely a dose response here. So for the five milligram BID dose, the hazard ratio was 1.7, and the confidence interval was 0.76 to 3.6. So included one fairly wide confidence interval, and the hazard ratio again for thrombosis for the 10 milligrams twice a day group was 3.5, and the confidence interval was 1.7 to 7. So that definitely seems real, and actually increased risk of things like thrombosis prompted. Uh, the investigators to reduce the dose for patients on the 10 milligram BID dosing to five milligrams BID instead. And there's a similar story with the risk of death. So on the lower dose of tofacitinib, the hazard ratio was 1.5, but the confidence interval was 0.8 to 2.7, so included one. And then the hazard ratio for the increased dose, 10 milligrams BID, was 2.4, and the confidence interval was 1.3 to 4. So that way it did not include one. So that's the story. The efficacy of both treatments were similar. And so I think that the reasoning that the FDA used was, okay, the efficacy of both these treatments is similar. And perhaps they thought, even though these hazard ratios are fairly low, and even though a lot of the confidence intervals do include one, if the efficacy is similar, and there's still you know, a statistical increase in some of these issues, maybe it just makes sense to use TNF inhibitors instead if you can. And that's how the JAK inhibitors ended up getting a black box warning. It is a bit frustrating that this black box warning seems to apply to all JAK inhibitors for all indications in all patient populations, because this honestly seems pretty specific to this patient population. What do you think, Michelle? I think that you're right about the patient population, and we've run into issues like this before with other drugs that we share with rheumatology that are also used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. The cohort of patients that suffer from rheumatoid arthritis have significantly elevated risks for malignancy, cardiovascular disease, the demographics are different. So when we're comparing patients on the same therapy, but with very different diseases, I think we definitely have to interpret that with a grain of salt. A few other bits. Patients on tofacitinib got zoster at an obviously higher rate, especially on the increased dose. So I think if you're going to start somebody on a JAK inhibitor, you want to give them the, make sure they get the zoster vaccine if they're of the appropriate age, which is age 50 plus in the US. Tofacitinib, the 10 milligram twice a day dose, those patients also had more non-melanoma skin cancers and more liver lab abnormalities, um, but that dose actually isn't approved. You can, it's approved at 5 milligrams BID or 11 milligrams once a day as a delayed release thing. And tofacitinib is actually not approved for dermatologic issues right now, but we have a couple other JAK inhibitors that are that we've also discussed on this podcast. Abrocitinib and upadacitinib have both been approved for atopic dermatitis in people age 12 and up. 
those two medicines inhibit Jack one preferentially versus tofacitinib that inhibits both Jack one and Jack three, and then a little bit of Jack two. Also of note, TNF inhibitors decrease the risk of major cardiovascular endpoints in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So you can't really look at this data and say, oh, Jack inhibitors increase the risk of patients getting a myocardial infarction. What you can say is perhaps that compared to being on a TNF inhibitor, your risk is higher, but perhaps they don't decrease the risk as much as a TNF inhibitor, for example. And as we discussed, we couldn't compare this to placebo or to anything else. So I think for most of my patients who I might put on abrocitinib or upadacitinib for moderate to severe topic dermatitis, I don't think this is, applies to them because they're like somewhere between 12 and 35 years old, probably, and they don't really have any other risk factors. They just have really bad atopic dermatitis. I mean, I'll talk to them about this study, of course, but I think overall, it's kind of reassuring once you get into the weeds, though I think the most compelling evidence to come out of the study was the dose responsiveness for things like mace and thrombosis and death, though it doesn't seem to be there for malignancy. I, th I think that is more suggestion than anything else that there's something real going on here. If an increased dose of the tofacitinib actually does increase your risk of thrombosis, for example, then I think the medicine is doing something that we might not like, but it's reassuring that the lower dose, you know, seemed fairly safe. It does seem to fall into the mo efficacy, mo problems situation that we run into sometimes with dermatology medications. Um, I know we looked over at one point in an article also kind of comparing apatacitinib um, and dupixent, or um, sorry, apatacitinib is Rinvoke for people who are more comfortable with the trade names, and then Sabinko is Abrocitinib. I always remember Sabinko and Abro because like Sabinko and Abro both have like that, that similar ending, so it can help you kind of put those two together in your mind. And then Rinvoke is apatacitinib. Um, I always thought Rinvoke sounds very like classist. It's like, oh, do you know about Rinvoke? And they're like, you know, somebody's a little like stuck up, <laughs> like a patacitinib. Stuck a patacitinib. Exactly, right? Not that the drug is or the people are, but. Um, yes, that was episode 73. We discussed, uh, discussed these in a lot more detail. Yeah, but I, I agree with you that we have to, you know, enter this information into the discussion with patients and use our balance of benefit versus risk. And that's one of the things that's just the art of medicine, you know. Well, that's the story. I think overall, it's kind of reassuring and honestly, just kind of annoying that this black box is on there now. And I have to talk about it with people whom I, to whom I don't think it applies. Speaking of medications, it sometimes seems scary that we also sometimes use for children. Haha. Look at that segue. Very nice. Um, let's talk about the adverse effect profile of acetretin in a pediatric dermatology population, longitudinal cohort study, and recommendations for monitoring. The authors are Anna Cave or Cave, I'm not sure how you say that last name, and Veronica A. Kinsler. And they are out of the St. Thomas NHS Foundation Trust in London. Um, so that's kind of, not sure how you, how you say the names, but they have a lovely article here in the JAD where they're discussing the use of acetretin in the pediatric population. And I think because they're British, they're using the British spelling of pediatric, which I always think looks so cute. It's the P-A-E-D. Pediatric. Pediatric. It's a pediatric patient. Um, so the, the clinical um, effect of acetretin, we know, can help children with certain disorders that affect their skin, namely disorders of keratinization, but also psoriasis and ichthyosis. Um, the adverse effects of acetretin are well-studied in adults. And of course, 
every dermatologist that prescribes Accutane probably has them memorized because we have to go over them every visit with patients and it's a class effect with these side effects. Um, monitoring guidelines have been established for the use of acetretin by the British Association of Dermatologists, but the adverse effects in childhood are not very well studied, especially in a non-psoriasis cohort. So these authors undertook a retrospective case review uh, they found 174 patients prescribed acetretin that were in the childhood age range between 1993 and 2015. And they recorded different patient variables, including demographics, age, the dose that they started the acetretin on, the length of time that they were monitored on acetretin. Um, they also looked at both starting maximal and final doses, and of course, adverse events, both clinical and laboratory. The children were typically seen by the dermatologist every three months. None were lost to follow-up, which is very admirable. Um, during the stu study period, and the clinical adverse events were defined as any reported clinical symptom that could be attributable to acetretin. Um, laboratory adverse events were defined as hepatic transaminase levels twice the upper limit of normal for children for their age, and this is very important. So if you don't know that children tend to have higher levels of alkaline phosphatase when they're remodeling bone and growing, you can get kind of freaked out when you get labs on a child because you can see a relatively high alkaline phosphatase higher than you're used to seeing in a normal healthy adult. And it may make you a little bit scared about things, but that can be completely normal. So alkaline phosphatase increases whenever bony remodeling is happening. It's actually produced by bone forming osteoblasts. Um, so you can see increases in alkaline phosphatase in children who are growing, in pregnant women, and of course, in patients who have Paget's disease of the bone because, again, the osteoblasts are making new bone, and so they're making more alkaline phosphatase. So do make sure that you're using the patient's age range for interpretation of alkaline phosphatase. That's very pimpable. Um, the levels that they were looking for was up to 1.2-fold the normal limit for their age with alkaline phosphatase. And, of course, they also looked at triglycerides. As we all know from using Accutane, um, triglycerides can go up with any retinoid, and certainly acetretin is not an exempt is not exempt from that risk. The primary outcome measures their clinical and laboratory adverse events were modeled with respect to five patient variables: sex diagnosis, age at starting, dose per kilogram at starting, and length of time on the medication. And then they did a multiple logistic re regression analysis. What they were able to find was that there were no fatal or irreversible uh, adverse events documented due to acetretin. The clinical adverse events were reported in 24% of patients, which is relatively high percentage. I think those of us who are used to treating patients with any kind of retinoid, though, realize that's a relatively acceptable and typical number. The patients only had cessation of treatment in 10% of patients because of the clinical adverse events. So that kind of emphasizes the balance of beneficial and adverse effects of the medication. Um, and this is a difficult variable to measure. They also potentially may have had discontinuation because of lack of adequate response to the medication. So the reason for discontinuation wasn't always documented. The laboratory adverse events occurred in 22% of the population, leading to permanent cessation of the drug in 4% of the total cohort. Laboratory adverse events were very rare after two years of uneventful treatment. So if you had a child that had been stable on a reg regular dose for two years, it was unlikely that they would develop new adverse events uh, on the laboratory monitoring. Reduced bone density was noted in three patients with ichthyosis, but that is a known risk factor for vitamin D deficiency. So don't forget that. 
Ichthyosis is the risk factor. Yeah, ichthyosis is the known risk factor for vitamin D deficiency, not the um, not the medication. So the bone density was not routinely screened in other patients, understandably, their children. There were no significant associations between clinical or laboratory adverse events and the five patient variables, you know, age, sex, demographics, things like that. Half of the children who stopped acetretin subsequently had the drug restarted. So the adverse events were not severe enough to prevent restarting the medication. So in this cohort, acetretin was found to be a safe drug at the dose used for the duration of follow-up. Overall pattern of adverse events was similar to previous studies in children, as was the number of children stopping the medication due to adverse events. And minor changes in blood indices have been associated with acetretin use, but tend not to lead in um, changes in therapy. So they felt that the practice, which is based upon adult guidelines, and these findings um, supports the use of this medication in patients. So when you're starting acetretin in children, your starting dose is usually 0.25 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. And the goal is then to titrate that to effectiveness and tolerability. Your goal dose usually sits somewhere between 0.5 milligrams to one milligram per kilogram um, for maintenance. And then children... Um, who have like disorders of keratinization, for example, who have to be on this medication for very long periods of time, offer an opportunity to study how children tolerate this medication. Although you do have to adjust for unique patient variables associated with the condition, like the vitamin D deficiency. Um, the clinical adverse events were things we are used to looking at for Accutane. So skin irritation, dry lips, nausea, tiredness and malaise, mood swings, hair thinning, abdominal pain. I think all of us ask those questions every time we see a patient who's on treatment with isotretinoin. The abnormal triglycerides um, were reported in the labs, and we discussed that a little bit earlier. Uh, one very nice thing here is their figure number one, which shows she suggested guidelines for monitoring the use of acetretin in children. And this was um, used in association with the published guidelines in adults. Their baseline blood tests they recommend were liver function tests, fasting lipid panel, renal function, and vitamin D. The other considerations, they didn't recommend any routine skeletal monitoring, but you should look at a diet history and history of bone pain or growth charts to make sure that the person is not developing some sort of growth restriction. Vitamin D supplementation is often needed in these patients, and I find that also in other patients that have disorders of keratinization. So this is a regular thing to monitor, not necessarily only associated with the drug. And of course, if you're on acetretin or isotretinoin, you need to avoid additional vitamin A supplementation. Girls, they recommend moving to an alternative drug at age 12 to allow for that three-year washout period to hopefully finish before the time that they would start to think about pregnancy, hopefully much further down the line for those young ladies, but it is a personal choice, which I respect. Yes. Um, remember, acetretin can be like converted and stored in the fat for like three years and is very, very teratogenic. So that's the deal. You're yeah. not supposed to get pregnant for three years after you take it. So it's not really a medicine for women of childbearing potential. Yeah. And the reason that happens is um, acetretin is the prodrug of etretinate. So that is um, a pimpable content piece. It actually came out after etretinate. Etretinate was released first and was a better drug, according to everyone I've ever heard who was able to actually have clinical experience with using it. It was more efficacious and had fewer side effects. They made acetretin as the pro-drug, thinking they could avoid the three-year half-life. But the problem is any alcohol at all in the body, which can include metabolic alcohol, which is something that we produce by digesting sugar, will convert acetretin into etretinate. So it has that three-year half-life in the fat. So you can't, you know, 
wash that out any any quicker. The other funny piece about um, acetretin when it came to market was that they were trying to compete with cyclosporin. And so they used really high doses initially, like 75 milligrams a day, because they wanted to make this drug, which is a good medication, but it's a turtle. You know, Dr. Quo is a person who likes to talk about medications for psoriasis. And he's like, some are, some are the jackrabbit and some are the turtle. And this one is a turtle. It's slow, but we'll eventually get there. Um, they tried to make it compete with cyclosporin, which is obviously a jackrabbit very, very fast. And when they had this very, very high doses of acetretin, it actually caused a lot more of the liver side effects and things like that that scares patients from using it. So I actually tell an abbreviated version of the story to patients when we're starting acetretin so that they don't get as scared when they go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist tells them they're going to go into <laughs> hepatic failure. Not usually. Our pharmacist colleagues are fantastic. Occasionally, we have one that acts in a little bit of an alarmist way. I'm grateful for all of my wonderful pharmacy colleagues. Nice backpedaling. Yeah. I've had a few frustrating phone calls that I just kind of revealed my cards on there. But for the vast majority of pharmacists, I am grateful for your service and knowledge. Well, um, we only talk to the ones who you know, have troubles with. So there's a bias. It's a sampling bias. It is a sampling bias. Um, they also have a very nice algorithm for treating the patients, including starting doses, how to monitor the patients they recommend monitoring cycles where you're going to do blood tests at two weeks, then four weeks, then eight weeks, then 12 weeks, then every three to four months. The abnormal blood indices include ALKFOS um, above like 1.2 times the normal limit, two times the upper limit for the um, ALT, AST enzymes, and then more than 2.3 millimoles per liter for the triglycerides. And then they talked about just looking through the different um, responses to therapy. So I won't belabor that, but I thought this was an excellent publication helping us understand how to safely use this medication in children. We don't actually use acetretin all that much for anything these days in dermatology, but it's the only medicine that works for some things. So even if you don't use it very often, at some point it's possible that an eight-year-old will walk into your clinic with bad palmar plantar keratoderma or something and all the urea cream in the world and all the tazeratine is not going to help and then you might want to do acetretin and i think that this article is really nice because first it's reassuring a lot of people i think are worried about potential skeletal side effects of acetretin and sometimes even isotretinoin in little kids but i think this article shows that you don't really have to be worried about that and then it's also nice that it just lays out the starting dose and how to monitor and vitamin D and all that stuff. So if you do have a patient like that, uh, this is a great resource to use. All right. Speaking of systemic retinoids, Good I want job. to talk about isotretinoin. So this is an article out of Nepal. Woohoo! I don't think I've ever discussed an article out of Nepal before. It's uh, from the Kathmandu University Medical Journal, no less. And it's called Efficacy of Isotretinoin and Antihistamine versus Isotretinoin Alone in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Acne, a randomized controlled trial. They also include Dr. Pandey and Dr. Agrawal. So this builds on a 2014 paper that was published in the JEADV by authors Lee et al. And that 2014 paper showed an improvement, I'm sorry, showed more improvement if you added an antihistamine to isotretinoin huh. in 40 patients. The antihistamine they used in that study was desloratadine or Clarinex. And so this study says, well, let's, let's try it in some more patients with a different antihistamine and see if we can replicate it. And indeed they could. So this was a single blinded trial. So the patients knew they were taking just isotretinoin by itself or isotretinoin plus an antihistamine, but the investigators did not know. And it was 100 patients, and it showed similar results. More improvement, faster improvement in acne, and fewer adverse events. 
And this trial used levocetirazine instead of desloratadine. So specifically at week 12, the group taking both isotretinoin and antihistamines had fewer acne lesions, a decrease of 66% versus 49%. And they had more improvement in the global acne grading scale or GAGS, which is a great name for a metric. So their GAGS were better. They uh, 51% versus 39% in terms of improvement. And also patient satisfaction was better. Of course, everybody's satisfied on isotretinoin because their acne gets way better because it's a great drug. But in terms of patients who were very satisfied, those in the combo group where 43% of them were very satisfied and those on isotretinoin, 24% of them were very satisfied. These patients were all adults. Okay. So mm-hmm. no pediatric patients, even though a lot of pediatric patients end up taking isotretinoin. It's probably generalizable to them, but we don't, I guess, know for sure. And they were all dosed at five milligrams per day of levocetirazine, and their dose of isotretinoin was half a mg per kg per day, which is actually lower than the way I think most dermatologists, at least in the U.S., do it. Usually we give people like one milligram per kilogram per day, you know, perhaps divided BID or whatever. So also 14 of these 100 patients had an acne flare during the course, and only one of those people was in the antihistamine group. Perhaps that's relevant. And patients in the antihistamine group also had less skin dryness and pruritus, and in general, fewer side effects, though not across all of the side effects that were measured. This article, I would say, did not report the p-values, though, so it's tough to know if those decreased adverse effects were actually statistically significant. So what the heck? Antihistamines, why would that help? Well... (laughs) They go into a little bit of detail. So apparently histamine plays an important role as an inflammatory mediator in the immune reaction in inflammatory acne. So the bacteria, QD bacterium acnes, produces an optimal environment for producing histamine and histamine-like products by changing the microenvironment of the acne follicle, which can perhaps be why some acne is itchy. In an in vitro study, there are histamine 1 receptors in sebaceous glands, and histamine 1 receptor antagonists decrease levels of squalene. They also say that other strengths of antihistamines include an anti-anxiety effect, at least of the sedative types of antihistamine. So uh, if we're worried about isotretinoin affecting people's mood, perhaps that could help, though the antihistamines used in these trials were both non-sedating. And also, apparently, antihistamines inhibit mast cell-induced fibrosis and scars. And antihistamines have been shown to decrease lipogenesis in sebocytes. Very interesting. So, I guess there's some basic science that could support this finding. Though, full disclosure, I am taking isotretinoin right now because I'm sick of having occasional acne at age 41, despite an excellent topical regimen. And I have not added antihistamines to my regimen, though perhaps that I should. (laughs) <laughs> um, by the way, levocetirazine, the stuff they used in this study, the brand name is Zizol. It seems to be the least sedating of them from what I hear. So it is kind of my preferred antihistamine. And it is the R enantiomer of cetirazine. It is rapidly absorbed, giving it a fast onset and has a long duration of receptor occupancy. So lots of reasons to like levocetirazine and not to levo it on the table. <laughs> Sorry. That what do you think, Michelle? Should we be like... You know, giving I'm everybody with isotretinoin I, also you know, an antihistamine. I'm starting to wonder if I got I need to thank God for my allergies because like I have to take antihistamines on a regular basis, and we keep finding things that that's helped with in some way. So 
I know we had previously reviewed another article looking at alopecia areata and rates in patients on or off of antihistamines and found some benefit for patients with alopecia areata for antihistamines. I do think that we're starting to respect and pay more attention to the role mast cells play in cutaneous disease. I think for a long time, we've sort of thought of them as just part of the mast cell dyscrasia family and then sort of not really that important in the rest of the dermatology world, but it plays a role in androgenetic alopecia. Mast cells play a role in alopecia areata probably. They seem to also influence acne scarring. It does make you wonder what other things that they play a role in, you know? Well, if you really believe the study, then every patient I prescribe Accutane to, I should also prescribe them levocetirazine. And that's a lot of people. The Zizol manufacturers would be jumping up and down if we all did this. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, the, the mechanism of action is most important more than the brand. There was another article we also reviewed about a 1% cetirazine solution used to treat androgenetic alopecia for that same reason, decreasing the effective um, changes that are caused potentially by mast cells in the inflammatory milieu around a hair follicle in androgenetic alopecia. So I think antihistamines writ large um, could potentially have some benefit. I think selection is very important um, for patients. You, of course, want to avoid the possibility of medication interactions or sensitivities, but for most people, they will tolerate an antihistamine quite well. So I think it's a reasonable thing to consider, especially if you have a patient who's just not responding to therapy. All of us have these patients that are normal, like BMI and everything, taking a, a dose that's appropriate for their size and don't seem to do anything in terms of response to Accutane. Like I've had a few patients that are, you know, just anomalous where they'll be on, you know, 80 milligrams of, of the isotretinoin, which is a good strong dose for the person's size, and they won't even have xerosis or chapped lips and the acne still misbehaving. So you wonder if they're even, you know, absorbing and metabolizing the drug. So I think that, you know, considering that at, that addition, at least even in patients who are having a sub, like a, a suboptimal response would be reasonable. Yeah. All right. So what am I actually going to do? I think if I have the frustrating experience where somebody calls me after they've already finished a course of isotretinoin and says my acne is coming back, it makes a lot of sense to potentially add something like this. I've had a few patients where they've been on it for three or four months and they're still not turning around. It might make sense to add this as well, though probably just being on it for longer will also help it. I think the real question is, should I just give everybody an isotretinoin an antihistamine as well? Maybe I can at least talk to them about it. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to present them with the option and see if it's something that they feel comfortable with. Well, speaking of acne, can I move on? Please move on. Awesome sauce. So speaking of acne, and isotretinoin, um, we're going to discuss an article out of the JAD that's discussing psychiatric disorders and suicidal behavior in patients with acne-prescribed oral antibiotics versus isotretinoin, analysis of a large commercial insurance claims database. And I would like to also subtitle this article, I've got some good news and some bad news. So the association between isotretinoin and psychiatric disturbance, including depression and suicidal behavior, is an issue of concern, but of course is controversial. They wanted to investigate whether acne patients that had been prescribed isotretinoin or antibiotics were more likely to have psychiatric disorders or to engage in suicidal behavior. So they did uh, a very nice search of the IBM Market Scan Research Database that has commercial insurance claims in the United States. So a very large, powerful database to identify acne patients who'd been prescribed isotretinoin or oral antibiotics between 2011 and 2017. 
They looked at patients who were also then diagnosed with psychiatric disorders or suicidal behavior and then did some subgroup analysis. So they had over 70,000 patients, 72,555 to be exact, that were included in the study. They had patients in the general population as well as patients who had acne that had been treated with isotretinoin or patients who had acne that were only treated with antibiotics. As we all know, many patients who we subsequently treat with antibiotics are first treated with, sorry, that we subsequently treat with isotretinoin are first treated with antibiotics. So those patients that had antibiotics first and then isotretinoin second were included only in the isotretinoin group, just for clarity. The good news is that patients in the general population were actually 1.47 times more likely to be diagnosed with suicidal ideation or attempt compared to acne patients prescribed isotretinoin or antibiotics. Well, wow, that is great news. Patients okay. in the general population are more likely to commit okay. suicidal thoughts. I know. I knew you were going to say that. Okay. Good news for us as we're trying to take care of patients with bad acne. Not necessarily good news for the general population, right? We don't want anyone to have an increased risk of suicidality. But but, we've talked before about how you present information can make a big difference. So the good news is that patients on isotretinoin have a decreased risk of suicidality compared to the general population. And the bad, I guess the bad news would be that the general, the general population is not as happy as we'd like them to be. So, all right. So anyway, just compared to the general population. So the general population compared with patients who are treated with isotretinoin for acne, that general population actually had a higher risk of suicidal ideation or attempt compared to those prescribed isotretinoin. The odds ratio for that was 1.47. So an increased risk for the general population over the isotretinoin population. And their confidence interval was 1.27 to 1.70. The general population's odds ratio compared to patients with acne on antibiotics or on isotretinoin was actually, though, lower for psychiatric diagnosis than for patients treated either with isotretinoin or, or um, antibiotics. And I'll just I'll kind of go over this in a little bit more depth later. So they, patients being treated for acne have an increased chance of being diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. Yeah. So the general population's odds ratio was 0.87. Um, the confidence interval is 0.84 to 0.89 compared to acne patients prescribed antibiotics and um, acne patients prescribed isotretinoin. And then the prevalence of suicidal behavior during isotretinoin treatment was lower, 0.10%, um, than in the year prior to the isotretin treatment, which was 0.22%, and in the year following treatment, which was 0.34%. And so that was also statistically significant. So the, while patients were on isotretinoin, they were less likely to exhibit suicide behavior than in the year before starting and in the year after stopping. Yes, that is correct. Um, this study did exclude individuals of public insurance just because they're not a part of that database, as well as those who are uninsured. And the data, of course, relied on the accuracy of medical coding. So their conclusion was that compared to the general population, acne patients prescribed isotretinoin were less likely to engage in suicidal behavior. Hooray! And then they recommended further exploration into the slight increase in suicidal behavior in isotretinoin patients one year after therapy. Um, there's also, I think, need for further investigation into the psychiatric disorder question. So acne vulgaris is common. 40 million to 50 million people in the United States are affected by it each year. Treatment of moderate to severe Acne can involve systemic therapies, including antibiotics or isotretinoin. We know isotretinoin is a very effective retinoid and is the only drug that targets all the pathogenic components of acne by reducing sebaceous gland size, as well as sebaceous uh, sebum production, inhibiting the formation of new comedones and reducing the growth of cutibacterium acnes, also while de decreasing inflammation. 
And so this is something that kind of keeps happening. The, what I want to say is it's a remix. They have decided to reclassify bacteria. There was an article I read about this called Reclassification of Bacteria Happens, um, which pointed out, for example, that bacillus used to have 500 species in it, but in 2020, they reclassified things. Now bacillus species only account for about 100 species and about 241 moved into different genera with new names, many of which were named after scientists, which is actually kind of funny. Um, but so Cutobacterium acnes is the same as OG Propionobacterium acnes, it just has a new shiny label on it and is one of the things that can promote the formation of acne, we all know. One thing that I think is so interesting about isotretinoin as a treatment is because of that decrease in sebum production and the dependence on sebum that Cutobacterium acnes has, you're kind of effectively starving the bacteria that make acne worse to death. So if I have a patient that's a teenager that's like really frustrated with their acne and having a little trouble tolerating the dryness of their skin, we talk about the fact that we're trying to starve the bad bacteria so that the good bacteria can repopulate the skin. And so you could a- say, now you sebum, now you don't. <laughs> Just came oh, up with that man. one. That's that's pretty good, actually. That's pretty good. I like that. We'll um, take credit for it. Oh my god, we're gonna we're gonna be in. A, this is a slip. This is a slick slope we're on right here. We're gonna have too many puns. All right, or or comedones. I don't know. You might want me to stop, but fat chance. <laughs> that that one was a twofer because mites can also be in hair follicles. So well done. Quite the coup de grace. Um, so isotretin's use has actually been limited by people concerned over its side effects in psychiatric associations. So there have been several controlled studies that have been done to look into this further, which have failed to provide conclusive evidence for causation between the drug and psychiatric issues. They looked to the meta-analysis, which I think all of us are familiar with from 2017 with Huang et al., um, where they looked at 31 different studies that showed, in fact, an improvement in symptoms of depression amongst patients who were treated with isotretinoin for acne. Uh, but the FDA still has the warning on the package about depression, psychosis, suicidal ideation, and behavior. And we know that this might influence prescribing habits as well as patient acceptance of the therapy. They've also had studies that have shown that more than a quarter of dermatologists actually believe that isotretinoin may cause a psychiatric disturbance. So we're going to look into that question more. Uh, studies have also found acne to be an independent risk factor for psychiatric disorders and suicidal behavior, which complicates our understanding of the drug and its, effect, its association or disassociation with psychiatric disorders. Large patient population-based studies would be very helpful, but few of these types of studies have looked at depression, suicidal behavior, and isotretin users. There's only been one um, study in the literature so far, which used a Canadian administrative database that found an increased association between isotretinoin therapy and depression. So one study with 126 patients, relatively small sample size, compared to 31 different trials that were encompassed into the Huang et al. review and meta-analysis in 2017. We also want to look at the general prevalence of depression and other psychiatric conditions in a similar cohort of patients. So the age, I think, also matters. The age they included in the study was 12 to 35 years. Those are very dynamic times in a person's life. There's a lot of changes that happen. There may be job changes, living situation changes, relationships change a lot in those age um, ranges, which all of these things, of course, can affect mood as well as sometimes induce feelings of suicidal ideation. Uh, So besides that, for the inclusion and exclusion criteria, they defined their study period as 12 months prior to the first dose of antibiotic or isotretinoin, and then the duration of treatment was followed, and then 12 months following the last prescription for either medication class. They also had to have the patients fill at least one 30-day prescription for either an antibiotic or for isotretin. 
And if the patients were prescribed antibiotics and then subsequently isotretin, they were included in the isotretin group only. The general population also consisted of patients aged 12 to 35 years who were not diagnosed with acne, so a nice representative and, and comparative group. And they excluded people who had folliculitis, rosacea, ichthyosis, Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, ehrlichiosis, malaria, or pneumonia, because those conditions can also be treated with prolonged antibiotics. So they didn't want to have people in their study that were um, being treated for antibiotics that weren't related to acne. And they also excluded people who were prescribed medicines that were known to worsen acne. These are very pimpable, such as systemic steroids, testosterone, progesterone, lithium, phenytoin, EGFRIs, and isoniazid, so drugs that worsen acne. They also excluded people who were or became pregnant, um, because this is, of course, a contraindication for isotretinoin, and they collected psychiatric data, including number of visits to the psychiatrist during the study period, and used psychiatric codes to kind of clarify the diagnosis. They also looked at diagnosis of suicidal ideation or attempt, which there are ICD-10 codes for. They had 72,000 patients in the study between 12 and 35 years of age. They had 42,000 of those in the antibiotics only group and 30,000 in the isotretinoin group. And then they looked at over 2 million patients in the general population for comparison. So the antibiotic group, about 24% had a concomitant psychiatric diagnosis. 10% were diagnosed with mood disorder, 12% with anxiety, and 1.4% with mania or psychotic spectrum illness with an additional 10.5% with other behavioral disorders. Of the 10,000 patients or so who were prescribed antibiotics who also had a concomitant psychiatric diagnosis, about half of them were diagnosed prior to treatment, 53%, um, and 47% were diagnosed after the initiation of treatment with antibiotics. So that's all the antibiotics group. For the isotretinoin group, 23.1% had a concomitant psychiatric disorder compared to 24.1% with the um, antibiotics. 9.5% with new mood disorder, 104 with anxiety, 1.1% with mania or psychotic illness, spectrum illness, and 9.8% with other behavioral disorders. So very comparable to the antibiotic wing of the study. Of the 6,926 patients who also had a psychiatric disorder that was then also treated with isotretinoin for acne, about 57% were diagnosed before being treated with, acne, with isotretinoin, and 43% were diagnosed following treatment initiation. So those are all kind of changes in, in the landscape of the psychiatric illness. When you adjusted for age, sex, and number of days enrolled in the general population, the uh, patient in the general population had lower odds of having a psychiatric diagnosis compared to acne patients who were prescribed isotretin. Their odds ratio there was 0.87. Remember, an odds ratio that's less than one demonstrates a decreased risk of whatever the event is, and it can be a positive or negative association in terms of it could have been did they get better? 0.87% would say, no, they didn't. They maybe got worse. Or if the question is, did they have a bad outcome? 0.87 would be a protective effect. It just diminishes the likelihood of the event of interest occurring. So that confidence interval is significant. Um, the patients in the antibiotics only group had lower odds of having psychiatric diagnosis compared to the isotretin group, which is 0.88 with a confidence interval of 0.85 to 0.91. So not a huge effect, but statistically significant. And we know that the isotretinoin group had this lower risk of suicidal actions when they were on medicine versus before and after. So I think the most interesting things to come out of this were that issue and mm -hmm. also the slightly increased risk of psychiatric disorders among isotretinoin patients. Do you want to discuss those two issues before we wrap things up here? Yeah, for sure. Um, so a few things that the authors pointed out that I think are important. Um, the completed rates of suicide were actually higher in the general population than in those prescribed 
Accutane or isotretinoin. The lower prevalence of suicidal behavior in those patients is a very interesting dynamic in this study and may relate to frequent contact um, with, with healthcare professionals and the fact that there is somebody seeing them on a monthly basis that's asking about their well-being and interested in them as a person. I think that there's a significant fraction of young people who have bad acne that don't have positive adults in their life. And in some ways, I feel like the physician occasionally is, becomes a surrogate for that. And some of the changes in depression, anxiety, that kind of thing after the cessation of therapy may also relate to the withdrawal of that reassuring presence in the person's life. The authors also speculate about the, about the possibility of lost hope theory, the lost hope theory being that when patients go on Accutane or Isotretinoin, they may expect this sort of miraculous recovery where they don't have any evidence that they ever had acne. But of course, in the world of reality, there will be acne scarring. There can be some recurrence of acne following a successful course of Isotretinoin. And so there may be unrealistic expectations of the patient regarding complete clearance of acne or resolution of acne lesions that may potentially um, worsen mood or anxiety symptoms after the cessation of treatment. And the other possible concern is that sometimes when people have complex um, set of problems, like they have the acne and they don't feel good about their skin, but maybe they also have mood disorder or anxiety. Sometimes people feel like if I fix this one thing, it's going to fix all these other things. But we all know that these are related, but not single cause problems. These all are multifactorial. So if you're only addressing one part of the condition, then you're not going to get a complete um, improvement or, or res resolution of the of the problem at hand. They you can also imagine somebody who, you know, has been diagnosed with depression, but is on treatment and they really don't like their acne. They find you, you make their acne better with isotretinoin. And then they're like, sweet, that's done. I bet I'm all better now. And then they stop taking their antidepressants and stop following up with their mental health providers. And that I could certainly imagine something like that happening. They also talked about the potential relationship between isotretinoin and the previous perceptions of suicidal behavior. And they suspect that it is unlikely to be the result of a biochemical effect of isotretinoin itself. So isotretinoin does cross the brain, the blood-brain barrier. Its effect on the brain is unclear. It has been looked at um, by several researchers, including Bremer et al., that looked at the influence of isotretinoin on human brain activity and found decreased orbitofrontal cortex metabolism, but no increase in the severity of depression. If the increase was caused um, by a biochemical effect, an increase in suicidality would actually be expected during or immediately after treatment because isotretinoin is gone from the system one to two weeks after cessation of therapy. And by definition, the post-therapy pr um, period started 30 days after the last dose of isotretinoin. They also talked about um, the fact that case reports claiming significant depression in patients prescribed isotretinoin reported the, systems mar the symptoms markedly improving two to seven days after cessation of the drug. So if it was a biochemical effect of the discontinuation, that would be unlikely. Um, so I think that this gives us another piece of information to talk with our patients about. Um, the challenge-re-challenge response studies that have also potentially shown some correlation with some psychiatric um, change may suggest that rarely, very rarely, depression might be a very idiosyncratic effect of isotretinoin. But if this is the case, it's so rare that it actually didn't translate to increased suicidal behavior in the cohort. They also did point out that death is not recorded in market scan. So patients who did not follow up because they had completed a suicide successfully wouldn't be recorded. Now, the I didn't know this, but the 12-month suicide fatality rate amongst adults attempting suicide in the United States is estimated to be about 3.2%, which is, that's, that's kind of good news, right? 
3.2% is lower. Yeah. Um, so they I mean, it's still too high, obviously. Yeah, still too high. Yes, yes, still absolutely. Lower would be better. Um, they suspect that limitation might have minimal impact on the data because it is such a small percentage. So this is new information for us to look at. It's reassuring that suicidal ideation may be diminished. We need to, I think, potentially have slightly more regular follow-up. I do have um, in my practice a lot of patients that finish a course of Accutane or isotretinoin they did beautifully on. Their skin is nice and clear. They're busy people. So we give them like a year's worth of um, topical retinoids and say, you know, we're happy to see you back if the acne returns, but otherwise you can follow up as needed. I think that if you have patients who are more concerned about having trouble with mood, either talking to them about following up more regularly with a counselor or psychiatrist following their treatment period, or potentially scheduling them for more frequent check-ins just to assure that you're not missing an opportunity to detect mood troubles beforehand would be a good idea. And I also now plan to change my practice to screen for mood symptoms for a year after the treatment with a patient of a full course of Accutane, just to help gather some data on this and ensure that we're not causing any harm to any patients. Yeah, I think if I have a patient who's got a known history of a mood disorder and I've got, you know, sign off from them and their family and their mental health provider that we should can go forward with Accutane and then we complete it successfully, I might just want to remind them at the end, you know, really happy that your acne is all better. Please remember to continue to follow up with the rest of your healthcare team um, because, you know, just curing your acne or treating your acne doesn't solve these other problems. And as far as this business of patients on isotretinoin having increased psychiatric diagnoses, you can speculate reasons for that. Maybe they just have more contact with the healthcare system, and so things get picked up more often. Maybe just really bad acne is associated with increased psychiatric disorders. Maybe really bad acne means there's more inflammation in the body that can somehow affect the brain chemistry, um, et cetera. Well, and one other point that they made, which I really appreciated, was unrealistic expectations may set the stage for more depression or anxiety over the condition of acne itself. So ensuring that patients understand that we're going to control the acne with the isotretinoin, this is a remittive drug, there is no real cure for acne. So you may still get acne lesions after you're done, but they will be easier to manage. And also clarifying for patients that acne scarring is to a degree permanent. And, you know, reminding them that we can work on the acne scarring after a course of Accutane, but there will still be some, you know, because I think some people expect the skin just to look pristine and untouched when they're done with the course of, of isotretinoin, and it's an unrealistic expectation. So I think if you set the stage with realistic expectations at the beginning, it's less likely that the patient is so disappointed that it affects their quality of life. All right. All right. Good talk today. So... Today, we learned from Dr. Rena Alau about how to take care of patients with skin of color. We learned about the oral surveillance study and JAK inhibitor risks, possibly not generalizable to a lot of our patients. We learned that acetretin seems to be safe in children if you got to use it, and then there's some guidelines about how to do so. We learned that if you add an antihistamine to isotretinoin, you might get better, faster improvement with your acne and fewer side effects. And we learned good news and bad news about isotretinoin. Patients who are on it have a decreased risk of suicidality, but increased psychiatric disorders and their suicidality goes up just a touch after they're done with their course. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, guys. And thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Thanks. As always, to, well, I guess not as always, but I will always thank Top Derm and Level X for inviting us to participate in their game and to Dr. Rena Allow for joining us today. If you would like to hear more of us, I couldn't certainly understand why, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on our website, 
dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archives as well as links to all of the original articles and also is a good way to reach out and talk to us. You can also find us on social media. And thanks to medical students Morgan Dykeman and Ryan Carlisle, who are members of Team Dermosphere and keep our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handles moving along. You can also find me on KikoXP.com. We had Dr. John Ho, who started that on the podcast. Uh, we had him on the podcast some episodes ago. It's a social media platform for doctors and by doctors. And if that's not enough, you can even listen to another podcast that we do we have another podcast it's a lot of fun um so we call it SkinCast, and it is the podcast for people who want to learn how to take the very best care of the skin they're in this podcast is actually for lay people um, and it is to help educate them about the different conditions that can affect their skin as well as the different ways that they can take the very best care of that skin it's a shorter podcast about 15 minutes to 20 minutes per episode and we have it on topics ranging from acne and psoriasis to skincare to contact dermatitis from halloween makeup it's a lot of fun and thanks of course to you listeners for hanging out with us today and we will see you in two weeks <laughs>